This is the podcast Surgery I See Rounds. My name's Jeff Guy. Today I'd like to talk about the issue of metabolism. And metabolism really should be looked at in, in two elements. That is the anabolism, uh, the building of new protein, and catabolism, the tearing down of new protein. Now this discussion is really elemental when we go on to talk in future podcasts about some basics of nutritional therapy and then get more uh, specific into, into various ways that we can modify our nutritional therapy to optimize patient outcomes. And this goes into issues of weaning people from mechanical ventilators, uh, issues of rehabilitation, getting people back to their pre-morbid condition, doing the things that they like to do. All too often in the hospital setting, we allow patients to starve. And I think that we all feel that we could perhaps, all of us, lose a few pounds or two, thinking I could certainly lose 5 or 10 pounds myself. But the kind of weight that a patient in the hospital loses is significantly different than the kind of uh, weight that somebody uh, strives to lose through a a variation of their diet or exercise. When you think of an insult, uh, typically a traumatic injury, um, that initiates a sequence of events that's very pathological. Now, uh, as somebody who specializes in burns and has a background in trauma surgery, uh, I'm always looking at the insult as the injury. Keep in mind that surgery is not a normal phenotype. Laying down on a table, having somebody cut open your, your head, your chest, pounding on your bones, uh, rerouting your uh, GI tract is not something that occurs naturally. Surgery is a controlled injury, and depending on the nature of the surgery and the nature of the surgeon, that injury is more or less controlled. But after you get that initial insult, you get a primary multi-organ dysfunction. And this is caused by a lot of elements. If you've looked at, say, the first few chapters of, of any major surgical textbook, Say, for instance, Schwartz, they'll go into this in great detail. But direct cellular injury, ischemia, and ischemia reperfusion injury. And this results in the upregulation of the systemic inflammatory response syndrome, or SIRS. We all know that the silly joke that it's not the fall that kills you, but it's the sudden stop. That silly example serves well to illustrate some of the things that happens uh, following injury or in septic shock. Somebody could have an infection, be it a pneumonia, a bacteremia, or whatever. That infection or, or that bacteremia uh, could be, it certainly is pathological, but sometimes it's not the, the bacteremia or the infection that results in such multi organ dysfunction, it's the body's response the body's inflammatory response that is even more damaging. And this is mediated through the release of cytokines, through stress, through hormones, through very oxidative metabolites. Uh, The neurosystem uh, also, uh, the neurological system, will upregulate some of this research response. If you look at studies that have been done in animals, for instance, animals who have had vagotomies, uh, you'll see less fever and and, and less SIRS-type response. So that SIRS response, mediated through the cytokines, causes a secondary multi-organ dysfunction, whether it's the heart, the lungs, or the kidneys, uh, and that results in indirect cellular injury, perhaps indirect cellular ischemia. And you know what that does? 
that releases more cytokines, more hormones, more oxidants, and you get into, much like a dog chasing the tail, you get into a, what's called a positive feedback loop. And somehow we need to find a way to mediate that positive feedback loop. Now I'm going to talk specifically about burn-induced hypermetabolism, which is probably the, the most significant injury or the most significant pathological condition that upregulates uh, an individual's metabolism. If you ever look in any textbook, you're going to see burn upregulating metabolism by this huge injury factor. But that's not to say that this discussion is not germane to other types of surgical and medical diseases. Whether it's somebody who's had uh, a thoracotomy uh, for a, a lung tumor, somebody who's in the hospital for pneumonia, um, or somebody who's suffering um, from a myocardial infarction, uh, we end up having um, uh, an increase in our catabolism. Now we talked about these local cytokines. Those, some of those are modulated by the CNS and they cause that endocrine response. This is another huge topic in critical care lately. We can look at the uh, adrenergic response. We can look at um, the uh, adrenal axis. But we see increases in catecholamines, increases in glucagon, increase in, in cortisol, and a decrease in growth hormone. Basically what the body is doing is the body is preparing itself to mobilize energy. You'll also see insulin resistance in this as well. But increased catecholamines, these are things like your epinephrine, norepinephrine, glucagon, uh, which is a storage form for carbohydrates, cortisol, which is basically the energy uh, mobilization hormone. The result of all of these hormones designed to mobilize energy is that they result in a systemic response of increased oxygen consumption. This is an increased metabolic rate. We see increased temperature and protein catabolism. This brings a good point that what's happening is your engine is running at a higher rate. If you have a, if you imagine an automobile sitting at a red light, it's going to have a certain RPM that it's idling at. Instead of at that particular RPM, the engine is now uh, idling at say two or three thousand RPMs at a much higher rate, requiring a much greater amount of fuel. But also, since it's requiring a greater amount of fuel, it's also uh, giving off increased heat. And this is the notion that not every person who has a fever has an infection. Uh, less than a third of patients who are in a surgical intensive care unit, for instance, have a fever related to infection. And a lot of this is mediated by the inflammatory mediators. A great question that I like to ask my residents is, where do we store fat? And we all know where we store fat or, or lipids, and that's in our body fat. And then they ask, you know, where do you store glucose? And, and, and the answer for that is clearly glycogen. And then lastly, the, the obvious question then is, where do you store proteins? And the answer is nowhere. We have no storage form of proteins. All of our proteins, all of our amino acids are functional. Um, and the, then the example that I like to give is uh, uh, building a brick wall or building a building that you have a certain number of bricks assigned to you. Make it 10,000, make it 10 million, it makes no difference. But you have a building and you want to now build a new project or a new wing to this building and you're limited to the number of bricks that you have can't bring any more in and therefore what you need to do is tear something down in order to make a new wall and that's what our body does is in the absence of any kind of input by delivery of new bricks amino acids and nutrition the body will break down what it has it'll break down the wall uh, and take its components of that protein its amino acids break them down and reassemble them to make what it needs now people often equate starvation 
uh, in a patient who uh, is not injured, a normal individual who's not eating for perhaps two or three days, makes an NPO, what we might want to call a fast, uh, and compare that to a patient who's not eating following an operative procedure uh, or some sort of injury or stress. These are distinct entities. They're not the same. Both these patients are eating. Both these patients may be losing weight, but the, the, they're very different. If you imagine a patient who's starving, again, imagine that car who is idling, stopped at the red light, and you, and you have very little gas. What do you do? Well, this is something that I do probably too frequently, and my wife would uh, certainly agree with that. But you don't sit there when you've got your computer in your car saying you've got, you know, 10 miles to go on your range and you're literally burning fumes, you don't drive heavy uh, on the gas pedal. You drive very slowly. When you, you may even turn the car off when you come to a red light trying to uh, preserve every drop of gasoline. The body is very much like that. That in a case of starvation that's not related to an injury, not related to an illness, the body decreases its energy expenditure. The body recognizes that it's not getting additional nutrition and it tries to conserve what it has by slowing its metabolic rate. Now this is in contrast to a a patient who is not eating, is fasting, but instead of just fasting because they don't have access to food, they're stressed. They're stressed because they've been burnt, they've been shot, they've fallen out of a building, they have sepsis, urosepsis, what have you. And what is their response? They have an increased energy expenditure. They're not taking in nutrition, they're not bringing in protein and carbohydrates, but their engine is running faster. In contrast to starvation where the energy expenditure is decreased, under stress the energy expenditure is increased. Your mediators in starvation, the inflammatory mediators that result in a surge response, are minimal in starvation, but they're maximal in stress. We get into things like respiratory quotients, for instance. If you remember measure, R, measure RQs, um, you'd see a RQ of roughly about 0.7 in starvation, but in stress, about 0.8 to 0.85. I don't want to get into a big discussion on that. If you don't know what that is, I would encourage you to go look that up, or perhaps we'll do a talk about that some other time. Gluconeogenesis. Gluconeogenesis is what it sounds like. Glucose, neo, new, making genesis. The process of making new glucose is minimal in starvation. It's maximal under cases of stress. So you have to ask, well, what happens? How do you uh, make new glucose? Well, it uses a component amino acids. It has to break down to get that initial amino acids for the process of gluconeogenesis. Under stress, you're trying to maximally make new glucose, and that would seem to make sense because your engine is running faster. Protein synthesis. Okay, now we said protein synthesis, building of new blocks, building of new walls, um, what have you. It's decreased in starvation. Again, under starvation, we're trying to slow things down. We're trying to do as little as possible. But under a case of stress from injury or illness, it's increased. Catabolism, the breaking down of proteins for the amino acids, is minimal under starvation and maximal under stress. Amino acid oxidation, minimal in starvation. Maximal in stress. Ketosis. Now here's what we see. It's different. In ketosis, your starv- uh, is maximal under starvation. In starvation, you're breaking down fats for your energy. But under stress, 
You're not breaking down fats. You're basically breaking down proteins for the process of gluconeogenesis to try to make increased glucose. And if you're interested where this comes from, this is Serrera in uh, surgery back in 1987. Now, the abnormal metabolic response to stress and injury. Again, it's characterized by a marked increase in metabolic rate, not a decrease like in starvation, an increase in body temperature, and an increase in glucose demands. And this is the, what's the, it's because if you have a need for gluconeogenesis. Now we said in starvation, uh, you're trying to preserve uh, your protein stores, uh, but you're breaking them down under stress because you've got rapid skeletal muscle breakdown, which is needed for the amino acid substrate, one as a direct energy source, but also for gluconeogenesis. The other thing that you need these amino acids for are the hepatic acute phase protein production, and there's a lack of ketosis. Uh, under stress or injury. Fat is not a major calorie source in somebody who's stressed. In contrast to somebody who's starving, fat is a major energy source. Now when I think of proteins, again I said I look at proteins as bricks who make up a wall. But you've got things in your body uh, that things are like carrier proteins, like albumin. Uh, albumin, um, I have a talk that I give and I have a nice cute picture of a, a Dodge Neon. Perhaps I should change that to a Volkswagen Bug. A nice, cute little uh, automobile. It's very functional, very utilitarian. And then the next picture, I've got this M1 tank crashing through a wall uh, with a bunch of soldiers on it. When your body has a limited amount of protein or a limited amount of building blocks, under the cases of stress, it has a choice of what it's going to make. It can make cute little um, automobiles like Volkswagen Beetles and paint daisies on the side of them, uh, or it can make things like tanks and, and defensive strategies. And when your body's being invaded uh, by bacteria or it's been injured, it has to make a choice. And it's not going to make things like albumin, but it's going to make things like coagulation factors and neutrophil pod products and collagen, things that it needs to contain bleeding, infection, and rebuilding. And therefore, it takes its limited resources, proteins, and instead of making things like albumin, it makes things like, like I said, the coagulation factors. Now here's a, a statistic that some people find rather shocking. And remember, catabolism is the breaking down of protein for its component amino acids and taking those amino acids and making something else for them. If we do everything properly, as far as nutrition goes to a post-operative or an injured or ill patient, we only abrogate the rate of catabolism, the breakdown of proteins, by 50%. And proteolysis, or the breakdown of protein, will continue for up to nine months following patients with severe burns. Now, you may be taking care of patients who don't have severe burns. Maybe they have peritonitis or urosepsis or whatever. But the patient is still in a state of catabolism long after we think uh, they've improved from their condition. And this is why it's important in uh, follow-up of patients once they've left the uh, hospital to continue to follow things like their weight gain as well as some nutritional indices and, and just simple uh, dietary counseling. But if a patient is in a state of proteolysis or catabolism, say for a period of just three months, now think of your patient who's really sick in an intensive care unit, multi-system injury, or very ill, and say they're in your ICU for six weeks. They may be catabolic for, let's take, you know, just let's make it three months just to make the math easy. It takes six to ten times longer to replace the lean muscle mass what this translates to mean is that a patient can be out of your hospital for perhaps a year, sometimes a year and a half, until they've got the lean muscle mass they had 
prior to being injured or ill. This means that a patient may not be able to do the things that they like to do for a protracted period of time. Patients will get very frustrated from this. Uh, I remember a patient very clearly who was a realtor and had a burn to his lower leg. Less than 9% is surface area. He was about 50 years old. I remember seeing him several months later and saying, gee doc, you know I used to be able to golf several rounds of golf a week. Now I can't golf more than nine holes. Uh, I can't show more than a few houses until I get fatigued. That's a good example of the effect of this catabolism. Myself, uh, I had several surgeries about four years ago. I'm only 40 years old now. Uh, was in the hospital for a very long period of time. I'm a marathon runner, a kickbox, um, and um, I couldn't walk to my mailbox, quite frankly, without getting winded because of the effect of being in the hospital for you know just several weeks. It really uh, begins to wear you down. Now, when you look at the effect of injury on metabolic demand, we've already said that starvation slows your engine down. And if we look at percent of your basal energy expenditure, you can expect starvation to slow the engine down and see a decrease in your basal energy expenditure in the area of roughly about 10%. Elective surgery will increase your basal energy expenditure to about 10%. So imagine that tachometer sitting at a, a red light. You're going to see your tachometer go up a little bit with elective surgery. Things that end people up in intensive care units like peritonitis, pneumonia, major infection will increase your basal metabolic energy expenditure 25 to 50%. The same for long bone fractures, multiple trauma, again, 25 to 50% energy increasing your energy expenditure. Close head injury, 25 to 50%. Severe trauma or sepsis, about 50 to 70%. And that correlates pretty well as to what we see in burn patients. So when we're focused so much that on a 60% burn increases your energy expenditure, say 50%, you also see that in multiple trauma and, and people with sepsis and closed head injuries, as well as simple long bone fractures. So this isn't a problem that's simply isolated to the burn unit or the burn patient. Now again, the metabolic rate in burns and major trauma, uh, if you uh, look at a major burn, you can see that the patient has an increase in this metabolic rate for up to 40 to 60 days. Uh, they may be going at, at 120% their basal metabolic rate. And the same thing is be true with major sepsis and trauma. Um, starvation, you'll see a decrease uh, in their energy expenditure where they, they'll slow down. And again, that'll last similar amounts of time. Elective surgery, a major surgery may not last 40 to 60 days, but again, you're going to see that increase that people often uh, aren't really aware of. Catabolism and nitrogen excretion, same thing. Burns, you may see catabolism and grams of nitrogen uh, be elevated for months. Not so much, it won't be as long in major trauma, uh, but it also occurs in major surgery. And Dr. Demling uh, did some nice work on this in critical care um, back in 1996. I like to do what I call a tale of two residents, and, and frequently what I'll do is I'll take two residents on rounds, and I'll say, look, you got two people here, and they both say are eating, say, 2,500 calories a day. Um, one of the patients, we're going to starve. This is the good resident. This resident is going to work hard, and, and you know, we tell him to adhere to his RRC uh, work requirements, but this guy, he, if he's not working here, he's working somewhere else, but this patient's going to, this resident's going to starve for days. The other resident is stressed, and that might be stressed because we just take him out and shoot him, but this is an individual who gets injured. Uh, both patients would be genetically identical, 
uh, same body mass, what you know, it, the same, basically the same patients. From starvation, the patient who's starving, say we're going to lose 2,000 calories uh, a day. They're not eating at all. 200 of that 2,000 calories lost daily, 200 calories are from protein. That results in half a pound of muscle a day in starvation. 1,800 calories they're going to get are from fat. Okay, so what they're doing is they're using their 2,000 calories. They're getting 200 calories of it from protein, half a pound of muscle a day, 1,800 calories from fat, a half a pound of fat a day. So the ratio of muscle to fat in the patient who's starving is one-to-one. They're losing roughly um, uh, a pound. Now we go to the stress patient. Okay, now we said they're both using 2,500 on normal situation. The starving patient is slowing their energy expenditure down to 2,000 calories. The stressed patient, as we said earlier, their engine is running faster. So instead of getting 2,500 calories, this individual is now using 3,000 calories daily uh, because their engine is running faster. Now, they're getting 600 calories of this from protein, or that's going to be a pound of muscle. 1,500 calories from fat, or a third a pound of fat. 900 calories are coming uh, from glucose that's administered. So the ratio of muscle loss to fat is roughly 4 to 1. Now what are some of the complications that we see due to weight loss due to a stress response from injury? If you look at an ideal body weight, patient comes in, we have their ideal body weight, and they're down to 90% their ideal body weight. We see things like decreased albumin, anemia, impaired immune function. You get down to 80% increased infections, particularly pneumonia, 75% decreased wound healing, easy fatigue. Patients are difficult to wean from the ventilator. Once they get down to 70%, they're too weak to walk. Uh, then lower than that, they get the cubitus ulcers, can't even clear their secretions. And when you get down to 50%, the mortality rate approaches 100%. You get down to 70% your ideal body weight, and you're looking at a mortality of roughly 50%. There are things that we can do to try to uh, control some of the stress response, and that's the bereavement of dead tissue, drain infections, decrease the inflammation. There's entire talks we could talk about that. Curb the hypermetabolic response. Maintain optimal blood volume. And control secondary stresses such as pain, anxiety, and decrease some of that catecholamine response. There's been a significant amount of discussion about the use of anabolic agents. This increases the rate of anabolism, which by itself is relatively slow. And the ones that have been looked at mostly have been human growth hormone, which is very expensive and can only be given parenterally, and oxandrolone, which is a testosterone analog that can be given orally and has been looked at in burn patients. Growth hormone, I said, increases your nitrogen retention and does result in an increase in protein synthesis. The metabolic rates increase roughly 10%. Growth hormone does cause some insulin resistance and does result in some hyperglycemia. It has been shown to improve wound healing and increase muscle formation as well as improved immune function. Human growth hormone has been used in malnourished patients with catabolic illnesses. People who have got an acute blood loss, excuse me, acute loss of uh, lean muscle mass of greater than 15%. Patients with burns as well as patients with poor wound healing, though it hasn't been used in these applications for some years. Um, there, as I've said, there are the uh, complications of uh, insulin resistance and hyperglycemia. You see fluid retention as well as hypercalcemia in uh, critically ill patients. Now, oxandrolone uh, has become more popular uh, when used as for anabolic agents because this is an oral anabolic agent. It does demonstrate to improve weight loss, excuse me, it does improve weight gain in HIV patients and patients with alcoholic hepatitis. 
it's excreted in the urine, and, and, but it does have some hep, uh, hepatotoxicity, what some people will say is, is negligible. It's a derivative of testosterone, so it does have the anabolic uh, activity of testosterone and some of the androgenic activity of the testosterone. Um, it's been studied in multiple venues. Uh, Dr. Demley did some studies in 1997. Uh, Wolf did some studies in the uh, um, multi-institutional research group at the ABA looking at it. And, uh, and Demley, he gave 20 milligrams daily after the stress response is resolved. Some people use it almost at the time of injury. Um, and um, he showed that when patients were giving roughly 2 grams per kilo of protein and oxandrolone that they had a significant increase in their anabolic phase and perhaps a decrease of uh, weight loss during their catabolic phase of their injury. As I said, it does have uh, androgenic uh, properties. Clinical trials have looked at uh, some of the androgenic, some of the androgenic uh, things such as uh, hirsutism. Uh, in 450 patients, acne occurred in three and hirsutism occurred in two. It's primarily excreted unchanged in the urine uh, and it's well tolerated to patients who have liver disease as well. Uh, it is an anabolic hormone, it's a steroid, and it should be kind of, you know, not used in people who have hormone-sensitive tumors such as prostate cancer or breast cancer. Um, and uh, breast cancer in women with hypercalcemia pregnancy should also be avoided as well. Beta-blockade in the intensive care units is something that's very popular. You can't almost go in any ICU and not see someone on beta-blockers for a variety of reasons. But uh, Dave Herndon's group in Galveston did a study in New England Journal of Medicine back in 2001, and they looked at the role of beta-blockade in catabolism. And the idea, again, if we go back to that automobile revving its motor at a stoplight, maintaining a high RPM, our engine is running faster in stress injury in contrast to starvation where the engine is running slower. The idea behind the beta blockade is that if we can decrease some of that surge response, maybe we can get the engine to rev a little bit slower and hopefully uh, decrease the rate of catabolism or breakdown. Burn-related hypermetabolic response, they looked at secondary to catecholamines. Hyperdynamic circulation these patients often have. They have an increase in basal energy expenditure and the catabolism or breakdown of skeletal muscle. And the idea, beta blockade will decrease the superphysiological response. Um, uh, again, we said that we use beta blockers almost a standard of care in people who uh, are uh, older age group having uh, uh, non-cardiac elective surgery, and almost anybody who has any kind of cardiac condition is on beta blockers. Um, we know now that beta blockers blockers can decrease catabolism. They looked particularly at children with burns greater than 40% TBSA, and those ki- uh, children had their burns excised typically within 48 hours. Um, uh, and uh, looked at retained lean muscle mass as well as net protein synthesis using a rather elaborate uh, uh, protein clamping or amino acid clamping technique. They targeted the beta blocker dose, uh, particularly propranolol, to decrease the heart rate by 20% from baseline and maintaining the mean pressure greater than 65 millimeters of mercury. Uh, and they dosed the propranolol at 0.33 milligrams per kilogram every four hours in these children. And the results of their study showed that the control group remained in a net negative nitrogen balance, but the experimental group resulted in measurable improvement in protein synthesis. Thus giving us another reason why you might see beta blockers used uh, in groups of patients, particularly in burn units, um, not only for the cardioprotective effects, uh, but as well as to decrease some of the catabolic responses. So in summary, we have outlined that starvation... Um, from a patient fasting is much different than a patient who is being deprived food in a state of stress. 
uh, is an important point to remember that a patient who is fasting, who's not critically ill or injured, is slowing down their metabolic rate. Their principal fuel is is uh, fat. Uh, a patient, uh, they will use less calories. A patient who is stressed or injured, their basal energy expenditure will actually increase. Their principal method of energy substrate utilization is gluconeogenesis, which requires the amino acid alanine, which means that proteins have to be broken down. The patient will actually lose more weight than a starving patient, and a large portion of that, they'll actually lose uh, almost um, 100% more of that will be in the form of proteins. A understanding of these concepts will become very important in subsequent talks where we talk about different ways that we can modify not only catabolic responses, but different methods of nutrition. That concludes this edition of the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. Uh, please visit the uh, website, uh, which is www.burndoc.com. Uh, for copies of many of these articles, and visit the uh, homepage for the podcast as well, uh, which would be uh, icrounds.com.